Hey Niners, Vedics, Changelings, and more! Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong, and today I'm joined by University of Washington astronomers Meredith Durbin and Tyler Gordon to recap and review what we left behind looking back at Star Trek Deep Space Nine. This is a documentary that is perhaps better known simply as the DS9 Doc, which was produced by Iris Stephen Bear for the 25th anniversary of the show. Meredith, Tyler, and I went to see the documentary together in theaters during the one-night-only special event in May. And I think I can speak for all of us when I say that we thoroughly enjoyed the experience. This was honestly one of the best, if not the best, Star Trek documentary that I have ever seen. And by that I mean no disrespect to Adam Nimoy, William Shatner, and everyone else who has ever produced or directed a Star Trek documentary in the past, but this one was just so good. It was so well-paced, so creative in its execution. And one of the first things that struck me about the DS9 doc was just how funny it was, which I owe to the raw honesty of all the cast members and to the interviewing style of Ira Stephen Bear, but mostly to the curious caroling of Max Grodenchak, Casey Biggs, and Jeffrey Combs. Alas, Meredith, Tyler, and I are not going to sing you our thoughts on the DS9 doc, but I hope our conversation will be equally appealing nonetheless. Through the wormhole! Welcome to Strange New Worlds. Thank you um, for having us. Yes, absolutely. Let's do a round of introductions, because neither of you have been on this podcast before. All right. Um, my name's Tyler Gordon. I'm a third-year uh, graduate student here at the University of Washington. I work on searching for transiting exoplanets. So the questions I'm trying to answer are really just how many planets are out there, what kinds of planets are out there, and uh, whether or not they might be habitable, although I'm focused much more on the detection side of things than characterizing and, and modeling. Um, so the thing I'm working on right now is um, better ways to find small transiting planets. Um, so the one thing that makes it difficult to find planetary transits is that uh, these small dips that happen when a planet moves between us and its star can be kind of hidden by the star's own variability because stars are always changing in brightness a little bit just by themselves. Um, so what I'm working on are ways to differentiate between dips in brightness that might be due to just the star doing its own thing and dips in brightness that are due to the presence of a planet. So you're trying to make it easier to find actual strange new worlds out there. <laughs> yes. Um, and when you say small transiting exoplanets, how small are you talking about? Um, I'm talking about things, rocky exoplanets, so um, things kind of the size of Earth to a few times the size of Earth. Um, and I'm also particularly interested in finding transiting exomoons. So those would be moons of exoplanets that could be um, the same size as rocky planets, maybe if they're orbiting a gas giant, or things that might even be a little bit smaller if we're talking about moons of rocky exoplanets. That's really cool. All right. Meredith? 
Hi, I'm Meredith. I'm also a third year graduate student at UDAP. Um, and so I primarily study uh, what we call resolved stellar populations. Um, say if you observe a whole bunch of stars in another galaxy, um, you can resolve the individual stars and then also um, study their properties in aggregate. Um, so I mostly use Hubble Space Telescope data to do this. Um, and the thing that I'm kind of focused on right now is using and um, sort of refining a distance measurement method known as the tip of the red giant branch, um, where when stars are on the red giant branch, um, there's a certain brightness that they hit um, before they go on to other phases of their life. And this certain brightness um, is something that you can use to measure um, how far away and a certain object is um, because you can calibrate it um, to an absolute uh, luminosity. I see. So when stars go red giant, they always reach a certain brightness and... Roughly speaking, um, they reach a sort of standardizable brightness. Um, and so they um, the brightness kind of relates to how red they are because um, there's a range of rednesses which correspond to temperatures um, that they can be at. Um, but if you can measure the color then um, as a proxy for temperature, then you can measure the brightness and sort of standardize that. Oh, I see. That's, mm -hmm. that's really cool. So you look at a star's color, then you know how bright it is if you were like right up close to that star. Mm -hmm. But because we're far away, it seems dimmer. And then you use that to say how far away a star is. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. So you're figuring out how far away everything yeah. Is in the galaxy or are you um, in other galaxies? Other actually. galaxies. Yeah, it's something that you can really only do with like a large number of stars, and so looking outside of our own galaxy is a much easier place to do it. Actually. Wow! Wow, that's awesome. Are you sad that Star Trek only explores our galaxy for the most part? I mean, there are a couple ones where they. <laughs> I mean, don't they like go to Andromeda and TNG or something? <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. There's definitely some aliens in the original series that come from a different galaxy, so I don't know if that counts. <laughs> right, but... right. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I think that was back before they really knew much. About... Yeah, they weren't resolving stellar populations. <laughs> well, that's yeah. awesome. Okay, so we're gathered here because we all went to see the Star Trek Deep Space Nine documentary. Um, so I'm wondering, how has Star Trek, and especially Star Trek Deep Space Nine, influenced your lives? All right, um, yeah, so Star Trek is something that has been kind of always present in my life. Um, as long as I can remember, Star Trek's been playing on the television, you know, in the home where I grew up. Mostly as I was growing up, it was all the next generation and the original series that I was watching. My father has a bit of a prejudice against Deep Space Nine. Um, as, as a Star Trek fan himself, he never really got into Deep Space Nine, so that wasn't something that we watched growing up. So it was actually relatively recently that I finally watched DS9 all the way through and became a fan of that series. So that's in the last few years. Wow, okay, so it's fresh in your mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <To> <laughs> I have a similar kind of trajectory through through Star Trek. I, I grew up as a kid mainly watching Voyager, um, and then Enterprise came on, and I watched that all the way through. After Enterprise ended, there was just this void of Star Trek in my life, so that's when I went back to rewatch the older series, and so I, I did The Next Generation. Uh, I watched the original series, and then finally I got to Deep Space Nine, so it is also like the last Star Trek series that I watched in full. And I, I wonder if that's like, um, 
I don't, I don't know if good is the right word, but it, Deep Space Nine has some more, I guess, mature themes running through it than maybe some of the other Star Trek series. And I agree. Yeah. yeah. Deep Space Nine definitely felt, you know, watching it relatively recently in the past couple of years, it felt more contemporary and relevant to me than even some of the more recently produced series. Um, for instance, you know, Voyager's great. I love Voyager, but uh, Deep Space Nine really tackles some, some themes that seem especially relevant right now. So. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, my Star Trek experience is largely the same. Um, I grew up mostly with the original series and a little bit of Next Generation. Um, and then, yeah, I, I watched like Voyager in college. And then, um, yeah, I also only finished DS9 in, within like the last year and a half, I would say. Um, and yeah, I totally agree that like, I think I got a lot more out of watching Deep Space Nine now than I would have if I had like watched it as it was as it was on while I was a kid. One great thing about DS9 is that it is kind of serialized. So when I was growing up watching The Next Generation, the original series, it was whatever happened to be on TV here or there, you know, before Netflix. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think I would have gotten as much out of DS9 watching it in that way. So it, it actually kind of worked out well that I came to Deep Space Nine at a time when I could just turn it on Netflix and <laughs> watch the whole thing straight through. Yeah. 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 yeah, like they talk about this in the documentary, like they had a whole whole bit on how like watching DS9 through streaming seemed to have drawn like a sort of new audience to it. <laughs> That's us. <Yeah. laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So there was a great deal of talk in the documentary about how Deep Space Nine sort of is set apart from the rest of the, the Star Trek series in flavor and tone and the fact that it's following a crew on a space station. They're not really going anywhere through space. They're kind of just sitting there and that allows them to tell different, more serialized types of stories. You guys have just finished Deep Space Nine relatively recently. How did, how did Deep Space Nine stick out in your mind? Extremely different or sort of different? better or worse? Did you like it more than the, the, the other Star Trek series that you've seen? What do, you, what do you think about that mode of storytelling? I think that for me, um, the interesting thing with Deep Space Nine was that I had tried watching it like a couple times before. I tried it in college. I think I might have tried it before then. And um, it wasn't until recently that it actually stuck and I could get through the whole thing. And so I think that um, one interesting thing that it does is that it sort of... Um, it sort of circles back on Roddenberry's original idea and sort of pulls at it a little bit um, and sees like where the loose threads are um, and seeing sort of like how like how it actually might work in practice if you have infinite diversity and infinite combinations and how it's not always just a pretty harmonious future. Uh, that was the thing that really that really stuck out to me about DS9 as opposed to all of the other series. Yeah, I think the big difference for me between DS9 and um, especially the series that came before it, is that there, there isn't actually a lot of like world building that happens in the original series, especially in, and even in TNG to some extent. And it isn't until Deep Space Nine that they really kind of start to flesh out like the, the universe in which Star Trek takes place. And so that's something that feels really different to me is that rather than, rather than being kind of isolated on a starship and unaware of what's going on kind of in the larger Star Trek universe, DS9 is like connected to everything that's happening in, you know, in Starfleet, in, uh, in the galaxy. And I think that's really interesting and quite a bit different than other series. Yeah, absolutely. There's this sort of tension on the Deep Space Nine station between the crew members. They don't all get along. And that 
has been criticized. Some people say that that's breaking Roddenberry's rule, where everybody's supposed to get along and there's supposed to be some external dilemma that they need to come together and face, but they don't really fight amongst themselves. But on Deep Space Nine, you get all of these very imperfect character interactions that are actually kind of fun to watch. I love seeing, you know, Odo and Quark quarrel. <laughs> and um, so, Tyler, you mentioned that your dad doesn't like Deep Space Nine, and I feel like a lot of people have the same kind of backlash against Discovery. I don't know how much of Discovery you guys have seen, but on Discovery, it's very much the same as Deep Space Nine, where the crew members are actually kind of butting heads against each other in terms of what they want and whether or not they get along. Uh, and so people are like, oh, that's so terrible. Starfleet is not supposed to be about that. And yet we had Deep Space Nine, in which that was what I think made it such a great show, is that each of these characters have such unique relationships with every other character on the show. It's like you can draw a web of characters as nodes and the lines between them, they're all different colors and shapes and forms and textures because everybody is so rich in their own personalities and then that enhances the richness of the connections between them. Some of them are, are, are good relationships and some of them are sort of at odds. Yeah, definitely. Um, you hear some uh, examples in the documentary of they're, they're reading, um, reading critiques from fans that are, you know, oh, it's like a, uh, it's like a soap opera in space and this or that, and uh, you know, my my dad's not one of those people. He's not gonna he's not gonna write an angry letter to to the producers or anything like that. But I think there are a lot of people that what they liked about Star Trek was not having to to think about or watch like interpersonal conflict. And the external aspect of it, where it's just a, a team going out there and tackling some space mystery or something. Um, and that's great, but that's a pretty limited formula. Um, and I think that's a really great aspect of, of Deep Space Nine. That's something that I really enjoy watching. Um, you know, figuring out who these characters actually are, what they're experiencing, how they interact with each other. Um, and that's something, you know, I appreciate that in other Star Trek series, too, that have done that. So I haven't watched a lot of Discovery yet, but um, I think Voyager's really the same way. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of conflict on that spaceship as well. So, Yeah, and I think that um, the things that I have ended up enjoying the most about any Star Trek series that I've watched, but the things that really stand out to me about Deep Space Nine and, to some extent, Voyager are watching the relationships between the characters and also how they grow. Like, Janeway and Seven of Nine was my favorite thing about Voyager, and, like, I feel like the the Deep Space Nine whole cast, like, really just, like, had so much more, like, richly textured relationships and personalities um, than a lot of the other series. Um, and I think that really, that really makes a difference in, like, how you relate to the series. Like, it's not really something that you can just, like, turn on and be like, oh, what are they doing this time? Like, you're, you're in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes watching uh, The Next Generation, for instance, I, I love those few little moments where there is some character development or some, some drama or something like that, but they're kind of few and far between, and even more so in the original series. Um, but that's, you know, that's what I live for. <laughs> uh, you know, when there's a wharf joke or something like that. So it's, it's good to see a lot more of that in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, it does make it feel more real and close to home. So thinking back on Deep Space Nine, were there any particularly memorable moments for you, either scientific somehow or otherwise? Hmm. I think that um, a thing that sticks out for me is um, actually... Um, Eddington's speech about um, how the Federation assimilates people without even knowing it. I thought that was like actually um, 
probably the strongest critique that I could expect out of Star Trek of sort of the original like ideology of the Federation and this idea of like a sort of just harmonious liberal future. And I think that um, it was a really important moment because even though he was he was a villain, ultimately he was the good kind of villain that you can understand and who actually raises some really valid points. One of the most common characterizations of Star Trek is that it sort of holds a mirror up to our own reality through sci-fi. You, you can, we can explore themes about our own culture and our own society through it. But what Deep Space Nine does is it takes it to another level. It's almost mm-hmm. like it is critiquing itself. It's critiquing that utopia that Star Trek mm-hmm. has built and sort mm-hmm. of, is this really a utopia? Uh, especially yeah. when, you know, the Dominion come and they start infiltrating people on Earth and, like, uh, then you have to go back to Earth and and are we allowed to accost people on the street and test their blood to see if there are changelings or not? Is that, you know... Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it really gets us yeah. to ask those questions. I, I really love that storyline that you just alluded to as well, because that's... I mean, that's another one of those things that feels, you know, particularly relevant right now are these questions about people's privacy and, and how, how do, you know, how does a society choose to balance people's privacy and a need for, or a perceived need at least, for security and, and how that mm-hmm. plays out. So watching the documentary, was there anything about it that really surprised you or caught your eye? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were several things. The thing, the thing that shocked me most watching at the moment that jumped out to me was um, were Mark Alemo's feelings. Because <laughs> 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 yeah. he, he had a lot of them, and I, I didn't expect to see such a, such a raw interview in this documentary. I thought it would be kind of everybody getting together mm-hmm. and reminiscing about the good times on set. And it was, it was really something to see, uh, to see this actor sitting there saying, you know, nobody ever loved me. <laughs> <laughs> and so for those of yeah. you who don't recall, Mark Alemo is the actor who played Gold Ducat, um, in, in the Cardassian Union. And so, yeah, he had some pretty salty feelings about uh, how, uh, how I guess, his, his character, or was it, was it really just him? him? It, it, it sounded him, to me it like it was like. him. Yeah, he felt like all the other actors were getting, you know, pats on the back for a job well done, and, and he, was, he was left to, to fend for himself, and, and no, nobody ever... Nobody yeah, ever told him how great he was, and <laughs> that made him sad. Yeah, and he also alluded to some things that like sounded, frankly, like inappropriate workplace behavior. So I'm not entirely surprised. Yeah, the uh, the impression I got it after 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 that um, point at which he alluded to maybe some concerning behavior towards other cast members, um, the impression that left me with is maybe that this was a person who was difficult to work with on set, and that might be part of the explanation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was I was overall quite impressed to realize that he had maybe like turned down the creepy a little bit to play Ducat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seems like that might have been a role that came easily to yeah. him. <laughs> Acting. Mm-hmm. Was there anything um, that that was like your favorite tidbit that you learned for the first time about the show Deep Space Nine or its production or or its actors? not remembering anything that was entirely news to me um but I did really appreciate like I had known before that um Andy Robinson uh Garrick's actor um was very like um he had spoken in interviews before about how like in the scene where he first meets Bashir he was just playing it as though he was attracted to Bashir um and it was it was really good to see that explored a little bit more um 
and to, to see um, Aristeban Bear uh, just say like, yes, we we absolutely should have pursued that. That was that was a really nice thing to see that I wasn't expecting. I agree with that. I I wasn't aware um, before this documentary that the character of Garrick had essentially been played as as though he was attracted to Bashir. I wasn't aware of that, so that was a bit of a, a surprise to me, but a, a pleasant one because that is what everybody sees on screen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think many people missed that dynamic. Yeah. So. yeah. In this documentary, they did a really, really fascinating and I think very brilliant thing, which is when they got the panel of writers back together for their reunion, They didn't just have a panel discussion. They actually said, hey, let's sit around and try to break an episode of a hypothetical season eight. And I thought that was really fun to watch, just their thought process for how they're going about plotting these characters' trajectories into the future and also 20 years after we last saw them. And they mapped out an episode for season eight that was pretty cool and really wanted me to get them to actually produce it. And they sort of dropped it along act by act throughout the documentary, which I thought was also a cool thing too. Like you're kind of always on the edge of your seat thinking about what's going to happen next to uh, to these characters. And, and so I thought that was really, really cool. Um, was there anything that you particularly liked about the season eight premiere that was sketched out or, or things that you would have wanted to be different? Yeah, so I thought it was a really great plot. I liked the the mechanism they came up with to kind of get the whole cast back together. That that sort of reminded me of a few of like the original series movies or something where you're you know bringing everybody back and getting them all on the same ship again somehow. Um, I thought they did a really great job uh, with all of that, and it was a really sort of captivating plot that that left me with a lot of questions, mm-hmm. left me wanting to see how this pans out, what comes next. Um, the one sort of loose in there that I I myself was a little bit, I don't know, that I might want to change if I was writing it was this plot line that they briefly touched on where Kira was leading a uh, like leading an army of converted Jim Hadar <laughs> that, yeah. that, that she that she'd brought to the Bajoran faith. Uh-huh. Um, and then they didn't really pursue that any further, and that seemed sort of uncharacteristic because yeah. Kira, while while deeply religious, has has never really been a fanatic or anything like uh-huh. that as far as I can tell and and didn't ever seem to be uh, one for evangelizing. So it seemed a little bit out of character for her to go about converting Jim Hadar. Mm-hmm. And it didn't really seem like they had anywhere to go with that particular plot point, at least in the yeah. rest of that first episode. So yeah. I could do it without that. It sounded like they just did it to make it as though like... Kira had this like secret, and therefore like she could be manipulated yeah. with it. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I wasn't, I wasn't too big a fan of that one. Also, what are these Jim Hadar doing, just hanging out on Bayshore? <laughs> <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't they be through the wormhole or something? <laughs> Where are they getting the Ketchisel White? That's my question. <laughs> exactly. All right, well, since this is a science and Star Trek podcast, I thought we'd bring the science back into it. Say you got tapped on the shoulder to write the next episode or the next few episodes of this hypothetical season eight. If you could draw upon some real scientific concept, maybe one that you study or maybe one that you just really love to think about, and put that into the season eight arc, what would that be and why? (laughs) All right. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, mine is mine is pretty silly, but uh, given that I work on distance scales and have like 
have spent a lot of time thinking about like how how you understand distances and how it's actually really hard to measure absolute distances to pretty much anything, um, even stuff within our own galaxy. Um, I feel like there could be some kind of plot line where they like severely over or underestimate the distance to something. Um, I have not thought this through in any way, uh, but. Uh, and like we've seen the sort of like scientific controversies around distances for a really long time. Um, and like, for example, the most recent being um, this supposedly dark matter deficient galaxy. I have no personal opinions about who is right in this debate, but um, there's been a debate about um, like if the galaxy is at this distance, um, then it is severely dark matter deficient. Um, but if it's at another distance that some other groups have measured, um, then it's a pretty normal, um, just like kind of dim galaxy. Um, I could imagine somehow like some kind of plot um, being drawn from that. Okay, and and I guess my next question is. How would they? How would your Starfleet crew resolve this conundrum about how far away something is? Would you want them to use your technique, or would you want them to like invent a brand new technique, or, or use something that you wish I mean, you could use, but our like telescopes aren't good enough? Right? I'd like, like to see like, an HR diagram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the unfortunately they don't really go extra galactic all that much, um, but yeah, I imagine like. Um, the, the distance scale methods of the future must be like must be several orders of magnitude improved on ours. Um, and so like you could imagine like some entirely new distance method that you could do using like ships stationed around the galaxy or something. I think that could be some really mm. interesting some interferometry. Yeah. <laughs> interferometry. Subspace interferometry. Something like oh, that. Man. That's gotta be it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I really like that idea though. I think you know, we always, they always sort of gloss over, like, the navigational aspects. Uh-huh. So, yeah, they always like, just, they, they have an astrometric lab, but, yeah. like, that's just there for, like, seven of nine to hang out. Right. Like, that's, that's, no that's, one that's, is actually for. Yeah. <laughs> that's just, just her board cave. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really like that idea. I'm imagining, like, digging into some of the navigational aspects and, and you know, maybe their sensors are down and they have to do something the old-fashioned yeah. way and they, <laughs> they end up, uh, you know, in the center of the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen that before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so for mine, part of the reason that I study planets in the first place is because um, because I like thinking about you know life on other planets and traveling to other worlds, and that's something I've always enjoyed in in Star Trek is you know what kind of create wild plant life or whatever is on um, is on this planet or what kind of aliens are on that planet. Um, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't a super exciting plot point. Maybe it's something that's been done a lot, but I just like seeing them um, explore actual new worlds. Um, one plot line that I liked in uh, in Deep Space Nine, they talked a few times about the Bajoran like history of of navigating through space. You know, they had many many centuries in the past, long before humans did, had space travel and had traveled you know through the area near Bajor, and so. Um, so I think it would be cool to see more plot lines maybe that deal with um, deal with the history of, of Bajoran navigation and what kind of worlds they might have uh, might have set foot on so long ago and um, and what kind of planets there are. Uh, we never really see any other planets or moons in the Bajoran system even. So I think that's something that would be interesting to explore. What kind of other worlds are there just <laughs> nearby Bajor and and do they have moons? And, 
what are they like? Right, yeah. I think it was a solar sail. That was the propulsion mechanism, yeah, right? And, yeah, and that's actually right. something that people on Earth are building right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Planetary Society is involved with launching what they call light sail, which is essentially the same concept as this ancient Bajoran spacefaring craft. So, so Tyler, we're discovering so many wacky, crazy types of exoplanets. Is there a particular exoplanet that we've discovered in the past couple of years that they just couldn't even have conceived of back in the 90s when they were writing Deep Space Nine that you would want this eighth season of Deep Space Nine to go explore? Ooh, yeah. Um, that's a really good question. So we, we've been surprised by a lot of the things we found out about what kind of planets are, are out there. So I don't know... I don't know exactly when DS9 was running. But, uh, Mid-90s. Yeah. Mid, Mid-90s, yeah. So they, they might have known about hot Jupiters then. And a, a hot Jupiter, you know, a, a large gas giant orbiting very close to its star, those are something that we didn't really expect to see that, that we did see. Uh, we, saw, we saw them first, and we've seen a lot of them because they're easy to see uh, via transits, this method that I study. They wouldn't be particularly good for exploring, though. So I don't, yeah. I don't know if I want to put a Starfleet crew on a, on a gas giant, you know, only, only, yeah. only a few stellar radii away from its star. But, um, you know, one, one potential interesting planetary system that, um, that maybe does and maybe doesn't exist, um, but is certainly something that we wouldn't have expected. There's this uh, tentative detection of an exomoon uh, that's been kind of making headlines a, a while back. And the thing that's interesting about this exomoon pairing is that it would be a, an exomoon the size of a gas giant around an even larger gas giant. <laughs> uh, and and that that sort of sparked some thinking about uh, <laughs> about so if you if you have a moon the size of a gas giant, you know, a really massive moon, could could that moon potentially have its own moon? Uh-oh. <laughs> and and this is a this, moon moon? this has been this has been called a moon moon uh, <laughs> to to many eye rolls. <laughs> I've, that's so great. It's not. It's not maybe the most uh, alluring name for a <laughs> novel novel object out there in the universe, but uh, but I think I'd like to uh, I'd like to explore a moon moon. <laughs> that sounds brilliant. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Okay, I think we have. The... That would be a great view. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'd have two gas giants in the sky. I think that'd be amazing. Second episode of season eight of Star Trek: Deep Space Nine coming your way. <laughs> the moon moon. <laughs> Between a uh, season eight actually getting produced and um, getting all of Deep Space Nine remastered in HD, which would you choose? I think remastered in HD. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not one for. I would watch season eight, but I'm not one for like long nostalgia trips, really. And that that HD was, I would love to watch that. I might take season eight actually, <laughs> just to. I want to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even even if they don't do a live action, just like a cartoon version of season eight, where, where the actors mm. can do their voices, mm. I think that would be so cool. I would watch that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Great. Well, thanks for joining me on Strange New Worlds. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank, thank you for you. having us. Thanks for listening to episode 71 of Strange New Worlds. If I were a CBS executive, I'd definitely hire Meredith and Tyler as writers for my Star Trek show. If you haven't done so already, I highly recommend checking out the Deep Space Nine doc 
it was a very informative and highly enjoyable experience. Coming up on future Strange New Worlds, a conversation with Professor Mohammed Noor, author of the Science of Star Trek book, Live Long and Evolve. Also, a discussion with planetary geologist Ellen Leesk about perchlorates, both on ESOF-4 in Star Trek Discovery, and on Mars in real life. And a visit to the Star Trek Discovery exhibit at the Paley Center in Beverly Hills. Until next time, see you out there. Today's been good. I've been working from home. I just came here to do this. <laughs> really, <laughs> I'm so honored that this is the reason why you came to work today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>